If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Tom McKay is on the board. Uh, Will Erskine uh, booking the guests and uh, Dan and Dave in the newsroom. Another uh, busy day and another beautiful day. Obviously, uh, earlier on in the week, heard about uh, interest rates going up. Before that, it's inflation. And before that, oh, yeah, it's a global pandemic. Uh, and we've seen the stress this has put on a number of our systems, uh, including food banks. The number of people using food banks across the country surged to an all-time high with inflation and low social assistance rates cited as key factors in the rise. This from a new report from the Food uh, from food Banks Canada. Uh, annual report Thursday said there were nearly 1.5 million visits to food banks in March. That was 15% higher than the number of visits the same month last year, 35% higher than in March 2019 before the pandemic actually hit. To get a local angle on all of this, let's bring in Joanne Santucci, CEO of Hamilton Food Share. She's with us now. Joanne, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So this is, and you know, we talk about this all the time, even before there was a global pandemic, about trends and 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 where this is going and, and increases year to year. But uh, you know, the pandemic was one situation. But what are you what are you seeing coming out of the pandemic, and what is happening now uh, compared to prior to the pandemic, uh, and even when we're in the midst of all of this? Well, Scott, this report is so alarming just in its sheer numbers of people visiting a food bank in one month across Canada, 1.5 million. And of those visits, half a million, 500,000 are children. In, 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 uh, in Hamilton, that number is closer to 40% for children. We have children lining up at food banks now instead of outside playing. It, it, it's so alarming, and it's hard to predict. Like, if you look at access to seniors, like, seniors are accessing food banks nationally. Uh, it used to be seven, and it's up nine. In Hamilton, it's a 30% increase since before the pandemic. These are our seniors, our retired people, our parents, for crying out loud. You know, the student population's up. So I think the real, there's two big anomalies. And the first one is when unemployment rate is at its lowest, from that target group of people employed, it's at its highest increasing access to food banks. What does that tell us? It says that even people working, uh, it does not preclude that they're not going to need a food bank. And it doesn't mean it's a pathway out of poverty anymore. And this is due to all of the inflation. It's upsetting everything as you go along. But I think the greatest tragedy for us is really around OW and ODSP. That's Ontario Works and Ontario Disability Support Programs. So it's our provincial funded program. They're support programs. And they don't really support anybody. What they do is provide 40 to 60 percent below the poverty line. Uh, funds for people to survive on. How do you do that? And if you're the government who sets the poverty line, why is it you're not meeting that with your program? So these programs have been degraded, they're antiquated, and you certainly can't solve the problems of today's economy with old programs that are antiquated. So when you ask where are we going in the future, I don't know, but I can tell you, I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. You know, people coming to a food bank in Hamilton are forced to choose to go hungry or forced to choose to go homeless. They've told us in a survey, 46% of the actual people who come to the food bank now 
said they'd be homeless if it wasn't for the food they get from the food bank. No one should have to count on the good graces of a community to feed your children on a regular basis or make sure a family stays housed. You know what I mean? We have a massive housing crisis. And you know what? The housing crisis and the food crisis are connected. The food crisis is telling us there is a problem in the system. You know what I mean? More people are coming more often. And it's saying that people are losing their battle with poverty, which is so alarming for us here in Hamilton. Uh, you said something a little earlier, and I've, I've, I've heard this as well, that uh, a lot of students even looking for help. There is the student populations up as well. And also what people don't realize, too, in our province, we have the north. They, the disparities up there and the food insecurity is so huge up there. It, it's just so sad to see that our government is not actually active in doing things about it. So we're saying that at what point is enough enough? You know what I mean? Like at some point, people are falling through the cracks, and now we can see it. They're landing in parks. They're landing on boulevards. You know what I mean? Like you can actually see the fight is losing. They're losing that fight to stay housed. And once they lose the fight to stay housed, where are they going to go? They're already in, a, in, a, in an apartment that's so cheap. You know what I mean? And it, there's a lot of problems with those apartments. But they're staying there because there's nowhere else to go. When they lose that, where do they go, Scott? Uh, this is a problem, obviously, uh, across the country. Um, it, it's It's been highlighted from east to west. In a post-pandemic world, a lot of uh, these weaknesses have been exposed. Is there anything we can do uh, nationally? Is there anything we can learn from each other working together? Is it, is it a case of, of, of giving more? You were talking about antiquated systems and such. We're talking about the same thing with healthcare that needs, needs revamped. This is also something you say we, maybe we need to be taking the same sort of look at this, the way we handle these issues, uh, just like we are healthcare. We really have to look at the cost of living. When this, uh, you know, inflation stops, it's still going to be higher. Like when we asked people, you know, what would happen if there wasn't a food bank? We, we had focus groups and they, they chimed in and said, if there wasn't any food banks, we'd either be homeless, we'd go hungry more often, we would lease our pets into the street, or uh, we would, caring for a loved one at home, we'd have to take them to a long-term facility. Every Hamiltonian, hardworking Hamiltonian knows one of these choices is alarming. Can you imagine facing all of them? Hmm. So I think as a community, we can do a couple things. First of all, let's get informed. I think Canadians should know their social safety net is crumbling under their feet. You know what I mean? There's skyrocketed inflation and a broken security net. This social safety net's a big gaping hole. There's no net there as far as I'm concerned. You know, when we look at there needs to be a bottom floor of income, no matter what program you're on, it should all be the same for all programs for people in the situation that they're in, single or families, right? There's an affordable uh, crisis in housing. Let's not make more people homeless while we're trying to figure out how much housing to build and how to meet that need in our community. And lastly, we have to look at paid income. When you go to, when you go to work and you cash your check and you still can't pay your rent and feed your kids, that's a problem. So these are huge systems. Everybody knows it might take time to change them. But food banks have been at this for 40 years. I've been around for the 32 of them. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I'm saying that there's a lot of data we can use to greatly inform what those kind of systems could look like and what the cost of living is today. But the government has to, uh, you know, come to the table and start talking about how do we get these programs back from the old days into the new system of so people can 
sleep at night knowing that they have food in the morning for their children for school lunches. Joanne Santucci with us, CEO of Hamilton Food Share. Joanne, keep up the great fight. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you, Scott. Fascinating to watch the politics and the media of the day and, you know, things like the uh, Emergencies Act inquiry and where we are in a a post-pandemic world. Uh, Obviously, now the conservatives have a new leader in Pierre Parlievre. He's making a habit, it seems, of uh, avoiding the media, playing his game in a different uh, in in a different stratosphere, we'll say. And uh, especially after the last month or so has not seemed to be around, although in question period and and all that sort of stuff uh, is relying more on social media rather than the mainstream, it appears, as even uh, dodging the, uh, I shouldn't say dodging, not attending uh, the Press Gallery uh, Dinner, which is a uh, annual event where uh, everybody gets up and sort of uh, takes swings at themselves and each other. Let's bring in uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin, Senior Fellow at Massey College, former Director of Journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you so much. So your thoughts, Jeff, on uh, Pierre Polyevre's approach and obviously staying low in the media. Um, what are your thoughts? Does, uh, is he avoiding questions or just not playing in that game? I think he's playing a different sort of game, which is uh, to kind of demonize the media. Because he got into an argument or an ar- some a reporter from uh, Global, David Aiken, Yep. Uh, started heckling him at a press conference and and started arguing with him. And eventually, Aiken apologized. He said it was inappropriate. But I think that this is a really interesting moment because what Polyavra is seeing and probably being advised is that if he boycotts the media for a while, and can't do it forever, but the, it's a win-win for him to demonize the media, make them look like they're all against him, um, and then he can use that uh, to his advantage. Now, I think at some point he'll have to come back to what is uh, media reality, which is you got to deal with the media and other uh, party leaders do this all the time. They On their way into question uh, question period, uh, they have a little give and take with, uh, with the parliamentary press corps. It's just part of the normal uh, give and take of, of being a politician. So for the moment, Polyevre is saying, I can't, they're biased against me. It's the liberal media. He's actually taking a leaf out of the Trump playbook, which is to, uh, he hasn't said this, but he's implied that uh, the media, the press corps are sort of enemies of the people. And uh, that only goes so far in Canada. I hope not that far. Uh, so you think the message that he is trying to send here is the media is biased? We've talked about this before, Jeff, too, that, you know, and I had said to you that, you know, it appeared that, you know, major networks, whatever, I don't want to get into it again, we're leaning more to the left. You pointed out, I believe it was you, that said that it might have something to do with the changing complexion of the newsrooms of the land. Was that, uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's, it's, that's certainly part of it. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now in the digital age is how personal opinion is now intruded on the news. Mm. Um, I think that there are, going back to the old standards of objective journalism, which of course never existed because we all bring our own uh, issues to bear when we do uh, any kind of reporting. But I think the idea has been lost a little bit by media organizations. 
which has kind of encouraged people to post things on their Twitter feeds and on on Facebook and on their personal accounts. Um, and so the idea that a daily news reporter, a parliamentary reporter, has an obligation to be as objective as possible, and that sometimes is not possible. Whereas people like uh, like yourself, Scott, and others who are involved in, shall we say, a little more subjective presentation of reality, where opinion is debated back and forth. That's the difference. And I think we need to yeah. figure out a way in which we can get back to who's doing so-called objective journalism and who's allowed to be a little more subjective. And I think that that's clearly poor David Aiken, who got pilloried for uh, taking on yeah. the role of being a subjective journalist instead of an objective one. Yeah, but you know, and in defense of David, by goodness, I think a lot of us were thinking the same sort of thing. Uh, I'm frustrated too by. So is it worse when leaders don't say anything, like we have with Pierre Polyevra, or is it worse when we just hear he keep hearing the same sa uh, soundbite over and over and over again, and no matter what you ask, the same thing gets said. I mean, everybody gets frustrated with that, not only the public. Um, I, I, I guess you're. You, are we saying? that what's needed here is as long as you say something because well, you know in some in some cases ah you know i get tired of that <laughs> yeah i think i think and i think the public does as well and i mean what we're seeing now at queen's park is that uh, is that uh, premier ford is saying he won't go to ottawa because it's a federal matter and he keeps repeating federal federal and uh he's clearly been advised or maybe he's thought of it himself um to basically transfer any kind of obligation to be accountable uh, somewhere else. And so that's the other side of this, is that politicians who are often worried about being questioned too closely will re revert to this idea of, well, the media is just automatically against me, and they're always unfair, and they're liberal. And in fact, if anything, um, my sense is, is that journalists print and broadcast, and, and to a lesser extent online, are trying to be as fair as possible under the circumstances. And in these days, that's very hard to do because the public feels that there is a hidden agenda somewhere. And that's, and that's what uh, politicians are trying to uh, identify, that somebody is out to get them. And as you said, I mean, if you if somebody doesn't say if the person, whether it's a politician, whoever, if they don't give their side of the story, then the court of public opinion, the media, whoever will fill in that gap for them and they'll fill. And, and we saw this with Ford uh, in the Emergencies Act inquiry. You know, it was it was quiet. It was crickets for like the first couple of days. And it's like, well, somebody say something. What's going on here? And then came out with, uh, you know, it's a federal issue, federal issue. You know, you somebody at least wants to hear something. You can't be quiet. You can't be silent. Right. And, and I think that that what we're seeing now is Polyev is playing a kind of a tricky game here. He could be accused of being the kind of the peekaboo uh, leader of the opposition. You know, he'll show up when it's in his interest, uh, but otherwise he's just going to use social media. And I think that this is a, this has been a trend that's been building for quite some time. And it's been basically uh, exacerbated by, by the social media world. It's much easier for a politician to post something on Twitter than it is to call a news conference. It's cheaper too. <laughs> 
what does the traditional media learn from this? Uh, we're almost out of time. Last question. What, is the, what, what does the traditional media learn from this? I think is the traditional media learns that they can't win this one. Um, that as long as a politician says, I'm going to tell you what I want to say, and you can't force me to, to engage with you. So at this point, it looks like uh, politicians won, uh, uh, media zero for now. <laughs> and we'll get back to see this in another uh, round or another period or whatever, another quarter. Uh, Jeffrey Dworkin with a senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. Joining us a little later on, uh, Sandy Shaw, NDP MPP for Hamilton West and Caster Dundas, uh, talking about a private member's bill she is going to introduce and debate today in regard to uh, the code zero situation uh, with paramedics. Uh, the number of code zeros, the situation when just one ambulance or even no ambulances are available to respond to an emergency is hitting uncomfortable highs in Hamilton and across the province. To talk more about all of this, Michael Sanderson, Chief Hamilton Paramedic Service and Treasurer of the Ontario Association of Paramedic Chiefs and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am Scott. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. So obviously, Michael, we've heard of these situations before when there hasn't been enough ambulances uh, to cover, um, you know, whether they're in a hospital and waiting to offload patients or what have you, even before the pandemic. What has this now, uh, what is the situation like now in a sort of post pandemic or the latter stages of this pandemic? What is it like? I really wish it was post-pandemic, Scott, where we're still kind of dealing with how yeah, a lot that's of true. coming from it. But but it's very challenging right now. It has been very challenging for some time. Uh, offload delays at hospital have become uh, endemic in terms of our, our management of issues. Uh, they impact our staff. Uh, but it's not just a, a local issue. It's a provincial issue. Uh, many larger ambulance services in particular are running into the same types of challenges. I think you've already reported we had more than 330 code zeros year to date. Uh, and uh, the, the number of delay hours that we have uh, waiting to transfer patients to the hospital uh, have really been at the highest levels we've ever seen uh, in the process. We're actually, uh, as of uh, this morning, I think it was somewhere around 34,000 uh, ambulance hours delayed at the hospital waiting uh, this year to date. So is this a case, and, and I'm sure you're going to end up saying a bit of both, but uh, Michael, is this about, uh, you know, crews waiting to offload patients because there's the backup in the, in the healthcare and the hospital system, or that we need more paramedics and, and vehicles on the road, which, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're experiencing a, a shortage just like everybody else is. Well, we're, we're experiencing a shortage because of call volumes and we're experiencing uh, the, the growth. But, but I think we actually have good plans for managing that. Council's approved uh, over the last several years the plans for managing the call volume growth uh, to, to manage the, the changes in the age demographics. And I, I'm pretty comfortable with following that plan. The, the issue that we have is really the, the increase in offload hours as a result of systemic problems within the healthcare system. So it comes down to the staffing in the hospitals or ability to get health and human resources, patient flow through the hospital, patient flow out into long-term care, uh, the issues of primary care access within the community and uh, patients utilizing the emergency department as really their primary care, either the emergency department or urgent care centers. So I, I think that we have a good plan for managing growth and volume. I think council is very responsive to our, our request for, for staffing for that. Uh, but but it's difficult for us to plan for council to manage adding resources on short notice uh, because we have 
hospital offload delays, particularly peaking at the levels that they are, um, our ability to bring in human resources is no different than anybody else's. Uh, it's a two-year college program before we can hire them, where we're working mm-hmm. to hire more paramedics as we move through it. But it's not something I could turn around and just instantly hire uh, should there be a desire to cover hospital offload delays just by putting in more paramedics. We, we can't just do that on the turn of a dime, nor can we actually, in fact, get the ambulances to do that with. Uh, th- there is this challenge that we have across North America in terms of uh, accessing ambulance chassis and vehicles through the conversion program, they're mm. significantly delayed still as a result of those chip problems that we've all heard about. Wow, man. Uh, so is there, uh, we, obviously we know, Michael, the situation with the healthcare system and, and, you know, everybody's aware of it, hopefully, hopefully going to give it the attention it needs, but we all know that's going to be a long-term solution. Is there something, uh, in term, again, you keep coming back to the offload situation, the fact that these crews just cannot get back on the street where they are needed. Um, is there any sort of situation you can set up, whether, um, you know, it's some sort of um, uh, area where these patients are being monitored, but monitored, but yet, not yet into the hospital system, perhaps. I don't know. I'm speaking uh, obviously out of turn. I don't know what I'm talking about. You're the expert mm-hmm. here. But is there a, is there a solution to get us through to this until we can fix the, the blockage at the at the hospital end? I think it's pretty good that you're aware of the issues and the potential for setting up an area to, to unload the patient or to look after the patients prior to entering the hospital, Scott, because we've been doing that. Uh, we've been doing that for a long period of time. Uh, we actually fund through ministry funding dedicated offload nurses for the hospitals just to facilitate that with four stretcher spaces. Uh, we double up on our patients where uh, paramedics arrive with a patient uh, and another paramedic who arrives. If the patient's suitable to end up having both patients looked after by one crew, we can free a crew up as long as we have stretcher spaces and we're working with the hospitals to facilitate more space for that. We just had a meeting on that this morning in the process. So those are all good short-term solutions, but but quite frankly, we've been doing those. Uh, we've been working with the hospitals uh, and it continues to be a challenge. It's When you're in the emergency ward, it's pretty challenging. The hospitals, yeah. have the, the paramedics that are waiting uh, and, and for the patients that are on our stretchers for, for those long periods of time. Uh, we have uh, Sandy Shaw, NDP MPP, coming up uh, in the next hour to talk about a bill she's uh, wants to address regarding the Code Zero problem. What would you want to hear from politicians? Well, I'd like to hear that they have the the attention to the issue. Uh, certainly, uh, we believe uh, systemically and across the province that there are opportunities. Uh, we'd like to continue working with the province on uh, the models of care issues. There are education issues for our paramedics on that, but that starts to transform uh, our system where paramedics, instead of transporting a patient to the hospital, could do a referral off to other healthcare uh, opportunities. Uh, they could do a treatment and release uh, rather than transporting to the hospital, all under medical control and doing it in a safe process. Uh, we would like to end up seeing uh, some, some transformation within the ambulance dispatch centers. Uh, we know the province is moving forward on um, implementing a, dispatch, a different dispatch criteria, uh, the medical priority dispatch system. Uh, it's been in process for many years now, and uh, we, we just want to see that one done quickly. But on top of that, creating a clinical hub within the dispatch, uh, so a clinical advisor in the dispatch to end up looking after low acuity calls and making clinical decisions from a medical perspective about, first of all, whether an ambulance is actually required to go or whether we can send an alternative resource or uh, doing some other level of managing it. So so those are all mm-hmm. good interim solutions, and, and I think they, they contribute to long-term solutions for our healthcare crisis as well. 
It sounds like you're certainly working on it, Mike, and it's just a case of getting all the oars in the water at once. Michael Sanderson with his uh, Chief Hamilton Paramedic Service and Treasurer of the Ontario Association of Paramedic Chiefs trying to deal with the issues of not enough paramedics and ambulances on the street when we need them. Michael, thanks for the time. Good luck. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talked about this before. Uh, So-called police stations working for uh, the Chinese Communist Party have been discovered to be operating here in Canada and in Europe. The RCMP is investigating this in Toronto. One was shut down in Dublin. Uh, Why are they here? Who are they? And what are they policing here? Charles Burton with a senior fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good to speak with you, Scott. So uh, really quickly, who who are these people? The China says they're not police. Why are they here? What are they doing? Well, you know, China says to convenience Chinese citizens here in Canada, they've set up service centers in fact all over like a the service world. ontario it's like a service ontario thing yeah apparently according to the chinese embassy let's say you're in canada and your driver's license is about to run out you can go to the service center which is staffed by volunteers and they will do their eye test and i don't know health test and so on and they will give you a new driver's license well This strikes me as a bit unlikely. I don't know what sort of demand there is for renewal of driver's licenses. But in any event, you know, one would expect that this kind of thing would legitimately be carried out by the consular section of Chinese embassies and consulates in foreign countries, not by, you know, some illegal office set up in Canada staffed by volunteers. So what we're really talking about here is a permanent uh, Chinese secret police presence on our soil that is mandated to engage in operations to induce persons of interest to the Chinese state that they want to get back to China to either confiscate their ill-gotten gains or to shut them up if they're critical to the Chinese regime. And so in the past, this has been done sort of ad hoc. You know, Chinese policemen come into Canada on fake visas claiming to be businessmen, and then they they coerce by uh, people here in Canada that that they want to see home um, by threatening their families and trying to make a deal with them. Now this practice has become so pervasive that they they've established these, you know, physical permanent centers in Canada and countries around the world. And, you know, this is a gross violation of international law. In other words, if the Chinese wanted to do a police investigation in Canada, the people to get in touch with is the RCMP to see if they're prepared to do some kind of collaborative investigation. But they aren't following that because, you know, they don't follow the normal rules of diplomacy. And aside from which, we don't have an extradition treaty with China because the Chinese don't have rule of law, no due process of law there, no rules of evidence. They engage in torture and interrogation and give the death penalty for all sorts of crimes. So, you know, from that point of view, they to achieve their goal, they have to be operating illegally. But the Chinese government says that in the past few years, they brought back 230,000 of these uh, of these Chinese people that uh, have managed to flee abroad. Um, 
You know, so on the one hand, they say they're not doing it, but on the other hand, they say they've been so successful, they've been able to bring back 230,000 people that didn't want to return to China from foreign countries. So, so they, you know, and they say they're, they, they're saying they're bringing back criminals. That's their reasoning. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly there, there are members of triad gangs who've committed serious crimes in China who are operating here in Canada that I think Canada would be very happy to see uh, brought to justice. But, um, you know, that is likely a minority. I think it's mostly political dissidents and Chinese officials who hived off to Canada, taking their gains of dubious provenance and investing in our real estate here and so on. And, you know, when the Chinese get someone back to China that they are accusing of criminal activity, they seize all of their assets. Here in Canada, if we pick up someone with the proceeds of crime, we only seize the proceeds of crime. But in China, they take everything. So there's some financial incentive for the police to get those people back so that they can, you know, pocket the 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 the, the collateral damage, which is the money that the Chinese official or criminal has managed to to squirrel into Canada. Charles, we've talked about this several times. Why is this still going on? How is this allowed to happen in a democracy? Yeah, I mean, I think it really is part and parcel of our rethink of China policy. Do we just give the Chinese regime a buy on everything so that they will still allow us access to their market and won't engage in economic coercion? You know, or are we going to start thinking more about security and sovereignty? The Common Special Committee on Canada-China Relations has decided uh, two weeks ago to devote six hours to uh, exploration of the Chinese police stations in Canada issue. So they'll be bringing up you know, all sorts of government officials and others to try and get to the bottom of this. And so finally, it looks like I think we will be getting to the bottom of it. And we can see the example of other countries, Ireland and the Netherlands, notably, who have closed these stations down in their own countries. And so, you know, how much longer can Canada pretend nothing to see here? You know, Scott and Charles keep moving along. Is the Chinese Communist Party so interwoven here? It's impossible to really make ground here. Well, that's the question. I mean, there's certainly a lot of vested interests who have strong connections with Chinese communist business networks that seem to get priority in government consultations on Chinese policy, you know. So that is a, that is a major issue. There's certainly a lot of Canadians who will be disadvantaged if we, um, you know, start to crack down on China and China retaliates against Canada through, um, denying our businesses access or purchasing um, Canadian commodities. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Uh, police stations working for the government of China here, keeping an eye on their people here. Uh, so they say. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to speak with you again. All right, a little earlier, speaking with uh, Michael Sanderson, Chief Hamilton Paramedic Service and Treasurer of the Ontario Association of Paramedic Chiefs, uh, in regard to the situation and, you know, nothing new, before, after pandemic, here it is, uh, same problems highlighted, the Code Zero problem uh, in Hamilton in regard to uh, ambulances and paramedics and their availability, uh, and obviously too many tied up in uh, hospital rooms waiting to offload patients and not getting back out 
out onto the street where they are needed. Let's bring in NDP MPP Sandy Shaw uh, from Hamilton West and Caster Dundas. She is debating and uh, introduced a new private members bill for addressing the Code Zero problem. And she is with us now. Sandy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thanks for having me. So give us a rundown here. Give us some points. What what, what sort of plan do you have in this bill that will uh, ease this situation? Yeah. So the, the, the motion or the bill is really quite simple. Um, and that is that, um, you know, in, in the opinion of the legislature, every Ontarian uh, should have access to ambulance and paramedic services. You know, there's not a lot that we agree on at Queen's Park. But it seems to me at, at fundamentally everyone needs to agree that when you pick up the phone in an emergency, whether it's your, you know, your mom, your husband, your child, you should have access to an emergency response. And sadly, uh, that's not happening across Hamilton and also all across Ontario. So I thought it was really important to make sure that we debate this here um, at Queen's Park this afternoon. You know, I raised this issue when I first got elected, actually in August, I looked it up in August 2018, I raised this issue uh, with with uh, Minister Jones at the time. And really her response at that time was Hamilton's ambulances are Hamilton's problem. Well, I noticed in August 2022, I raised it again. So it's been four years of trying to uh, get people in the legislature or the government to see that this is a significant public safety risk and they need to act. Uh, obviously, Sandy, we know the issues. What 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 do we what needs to be done? What are how do we move forward? Many are, are uh, again know what the issues here are. What are your suggestions for how we resolve this? Well, to start with, I think that the province needs to show some leadership and and and, and accept the responsibility to address this problem. There's a lot of finger pointing that's going on, and it is a bit of a complex problem between municipalities, paramedics, and hospitals. But at the end of the day, the, the premier is the premier of this province, and the government is the government. So they should be stepping in to help uh, to help respond to this crisis. There are all kinds of organizations. I mean, you talked about the, um, the Ontario Paramedics Association, Ontario Nurses Association, uh, Paramedics Association. They have all been doing the heavy lifting. They provided reports. They've provided suggestions to this government. It's time for them to listen. And, you know, I mean, they're, they, it just has to be said that in the middle of a health care crisis, um, you know, this government has frozen the, health, the, the wages of health care workers. So part of the fundamental problem, not only under investment by this government, but it's a health care staffing shortage. I mean, they can't re- recruit and retain health care workers it's a difficult um, environment to work in and their wages are frozen. So, you know, everyone has been calling, everyone that has a decent understanding of the problem has been calling to say at the very least we need to, to uh, re- restore and pay people that respond to emergencies, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to pay them. What, they, what do you what say? What do you say? What do you say, Sandy, to many who say that's a red herring in the sense that this does not only address uh, the bill, does not only address uh, the wages of nurses, but also other civil servants, public servants, sorry, and that this was signed prior to the pandemic over two years ago. So these are all coming due yes. and being and being renewed anyway. Uh, when we were talking to uh, Michael Sanderson, uh, his main point was uh, in what he said 
said, and he was quite complimentary of the city, saying the city has been good with planning and future planning and having enough staff for growth and that sort of thing. He said the issue was the model of care is broken, and that is we can't obviously get the uh, ambulances back on the road because there's the backlog at the hospitals to get them off. Uh, again, um, more nurses, more whatever. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, isn't it the model of care that really needs to be addressed? And, and, and you know, we've really noticed that coming out of a post-pandemic. We can't keep doing the same thing. We still we still spend a tremendous amount of money per capita on 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 healthcare and such. Just something's happening between point A and point B. Do we need to focus more on how we do this as opposed to keep doing the same thing over and over again? You know, absolutely. And so who do we need to help us do that? That would be the premier and the government. And they're completely is, absent on this. And I just would like to point out that the Financial Accountability Officer just released a report today and that it is projecting funding shortfalls of $40 billion across all sectors, including a $23 billion shortfall in healthcare spending. $23 billion. So, you know, I agree with you that, uh, and I agree with the chief, I talk to the chief quite regularly, that we need to come up with innovative ways to address this problem. But at the, at the end of the day, if you are underfunding a system by $23 billion, all, all the creative solutions, all the goodwill of all of the hardworking uh, first, first responders is not going to make up for that loss of that kind of funding. Uh, do we keep funding that system or do we find out a different way of doing it? Again, this is not a problem that's unique to Ontario. There's pre- premiers in, underneath the, the leader of, of the former, uh, BC Premier, uh, Horgan, uh, that, you know, rallying the premiers together to try to get something going on, uh, to change the template of all of this. Again, it seems we're running after this with band-aids and more money as opposed to trying to actually, you know, fix a system that's actually broken. Well, let me just be clear. We're not running at it with more money. We're underfunding the system. Like that is just the No, but you're asking, you're asking for more money. My point is. Well, I'm asking him not to. My, so the point being that you can't underfund by $23 billion in healthcare in Ontario and expect to have, uh, expect to have the kind of care that, that every, it should be every Ontarian's right. And, you know, I will agree that this is a complex system and that, you know, we can talk about things like the model of care and absolutely everyone's willing absolutely willing to roll up their sleeves and figure out a way to address this ongoing problem that, you know, that didn't start overnight, as you say. But in the meantime, while we figure that out, should we allow uh, someone to be able to call for an ambulance and not have have a, a response there? And it's not just patients and it's not just paramedics. I really just want to share with you a very recent story. It's the people that answer the phone, the ambulance communication officers that are bearing the brunt of this. And I was just talking to one of them who shared that because of this shortage of funding, the shortage of available ambulances, she was in a situation where she had a mother that called that had a baby that was choking on the line. And she had to put her on hold to respond to a cardiac arrest situation. And she had no ambulance to send. And she said to me, and I agree that no person should have to make that kind of a decision. So that's the, that is the public safety crisis that we're facing right now. So while we look forward to the future to, to change the model, and I agree, we just can't pe- let people, uh, you know, we can't let people's lives be put at risk in such a significant way. 
Sandy Shaw with us, NDP, MPP, Hamilton West, and Caster Dundas. A uh, new private members bill introduced today trying to help the Code Zero problem in Hamilton and across the province. Sandy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Thanks. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and Just Talk Politics. It's always fun. Tim, how are you? I hope you're well. Boy, well, you play my great big C at the end of the day like you do, Scott. I'm good, buddy. I'm good. <laughs> there you go. All right. I have a theory. I want to bounce it off you. So oh, I've been I watching like the emergencies. Theories. They're always entertaining. <laughs> Lay it on me, buddy. <laughs> All right. So I'm um, watching the Emergencies Act inquiry and what we're finding out, complete dysfunctionality within the senior levels of the Ottawa Police Service, uh, the liaisons between the Police Services Board, the mayor's office, everybody's fighting, conflict everywhere. Intelligence starts coming in. Hey, there's going to be uh, a disturbance coming up here. Uh, obviously, slowly, uh, the chief blows that off. Uh, and, and, and what's really surprising is does not have a plan B if they do not leave. Uh, Obviously, they don't leave. Uh, the intelligence continues to pour in. They're going to stay for a while. The help arrives. There doesn't seem to be a plan. He seems to be resisting any help. At the end of the day, he resigns the day after the Emergency Act was declared. My theory is this Emergency Act was called to remove him from office so others could get in with their plan and get rid of this as they did. What are your thoughts? Well, that's a pretty good one, Scott. Um, I don't know if that was the intention of it, but certainly the act had to be called because whatever everything else that they were trying for the reasons you articulated uh, weren't working and slowly, clearly saw the, the writing on the wall. Um, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I mean, it's just frustrating if you're a resident of the city of Ottawa. You and I talked often when this thing was going on, just to have confirmed what a lot of people were saying at the time that the um, uh, the leadership of the OPS, or in particular Chief Slowly, uh, didn't manage this well. And now, seemingly, at least what we've heard so far, that appears to be true, um, is uh, it's not a pleasant confirmation to have made right now. Uh, the headline in the Star, Trudeau government was losing faith in Ottawa police to end the Freedom Convoy, Top Mountie wrote. Um, whose job is it, do we know? If the police chief, if the police chief, it's not working out. Who who gets rid of them? Who fires them? Because I understand during the conversation between uh, the prime minister and the mayor of Ottawa, the telephone call we all heard, uh, the mayor didn't want to replace him at that time because of a command issue. He knew what was going on, but clearly yeah. he 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 wasn't jumping in. Well, I mean, the Ottawa Police Service chief is hired by the city of Ottawa. They just hired a new chief this week. So if they can hire a chief, they certainly can fire a chief. I kind of get Jim Watson, the, the outgoing mayor's point on all of this. Um, yeah. Maybe that would have been perceived wrongly at the time if they had a fired slowly and would have been a, caused more disturbance in the ranks. But I can tell you, Scott, uh, I have a a few friends in the OPS, the Ottawa Police Service, and uh, I don't know if it's historical or writing on their part. I don't think it is because I've known these guys for a long time through different chiefs. There wasn't a lot of confidence in slowly to begin with, and then I think whatever yeah. confidence was there was evaporated uh, during the whole uh, Freedom Convoy exercise. So I think slowly is up soon. It will be fascinating to hear his defense of his circumstances. Um, 
was it a week ago at the first week of the uh, inquiry, you had Diane Deans, who was the chair of the police services board, who were, uh, also stepped down during the, the time of the Freedom Convoy, saying, you know, there was a point when she said to Peter slowly, uh, look, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who have lost confidence in you. And according to her, he said, well, you know, write me a check and I'm gone. So, yeah, it doesn't mm. build a lot of confidence in, um, in, in decision-making and leadership at that point in time and how slowly he ended up getting that job and all of those things. Uh, they won't get addressed by this inquiry, uh, but certainly there are things that are talked about here in Ottawa. Uh, lots of chatter earlier on in the week about Doug Ford uh, being asked to testify. He was, and he wasn't. Then he summoned. Uh, then he was silent for a couple of days, and then came out and said, uh, "It's a federal issue. Federal, federal, federal. It's it's, it's the prime minister's party." I said that, not him. Uh, should he be questioned? Is it relevant? And again, at the beginning of this, I'm thinking, "Well, yeah, you should get up there because number one, you don't want the media telling your story, and that's what they'll do if you don't speak." But now is we hear more and more and more of just the total dysfunctionality within the upper echelons of the police service that I'm not sure it's relevant. But should he? Yeah, I don't think it's essential to getting at what went wrong, but I think it will be helpful um, because uh, some of the premier's arguments are a bit bogus about you know the responsibility of policing. If he's right at, at a very high level of saying that the police do the policing, but um, you know, the, 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 the public make the policies which help shape the policing that the police do, and the public make the laws that the police enforce. And in the case of Ottawa, uh, the OPP were front and center, as most people know in, in your region and elsewhere. Downtown Ottawa is governed by the three police forces anyway. Parliament Hill tends to be the OPS. Some of the off-roads are the OPP. Others are Parliament Hill is the RCMP. So it would help if he did it. And I think Doug Ford would do okay in these circumstances. Some say he'd be good um, for the first bit of it, but may lose his patience afterwards. But, you know, I I, I think by not testifying, it looks like he's hiding something. And I'm not sure he wants to invite that criticism when when it may not be necessary at all if he simply showed up. Will there something, do you think there's something that will come out that will even more so put him under the magnifying glass? Oh, yeah, he's, there's the issue there. There's one of the problems there. Because at this point, I don't see it. Well, other yeah, than, yes, he, you know, I, I mean, the op- other than the optics. Yeah, uh, unless, so I've got a Tim Powers theory. You had a Scott Thompson theory. Unless the reason yep. he's trying to duck this is he's trying to help the prime minister out a little bit, right? Uh, because I was wondering that as well. I was wondering that as well, Tim, because these guys are so buddy-buddy. Now the premier's got one up on him because he's got, you know, evidence of the mayor and the prime minister shaming him. Is he doing this just to not get involved with the politics? I'm not playing this game. Whether he is or it isn't, that could benefit him tremendously politically by not getting into the yet getting into the fray, and he's been very wise about the way he's managed his relationship with the federal government. It's produced dividends for him, so maybe that's another calculation there that, look, why do we want to rock the boat around the rapport that we have that's working for us now? If we get in there and you have to answer questions truthfully, there may be things you say that will irritate the federal government that aren't going to make a meaningful difference at all to the outcome of this inquiry, so let's try and avoid going. Perhaps that is it. All right, Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Always fun, Tim. Thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. Emergency Act testimony continues today. Uh, and again, um, as I've said, and and it, it seems to be the situation that uh, uh, there was lots of intelligence coming into the Ottawa Police Service. There was lots of help there. Uh, there was dysfunction within the Ottawa Police Service uh, in their upper management and their liaisons with the Police Services Board, uh, the city, what have you. Uh, that's where the breakdown seemed to be, uh, certainly at this point, a, a couple of weeks into the testimony uh, what else are we going to hear that can change that not sure are we going to hear more of the same uh, but again at the end of the day it seemed that things changed dramatically uh, once the police chief resigned which was the day after the emergencies act was called once a new leader it appears was put in place things cleaned up rather quickly let's bring in andrew mcdougall assistant professor in canadian politics and public law with the university of toronto and is with us now andrew thanks for the time i hope you're well i am always a pleasure so andrew obviously as we hear more and more about this there seems to be a lot of dysfunction within the uh, ottawa police services and such uh it seemed that an intelligence was coming in it was ignored uh there didn't appear to be a plan b if they did stay the protesters which of course uh they did and then of course uh all heck broke loose and and it appeared again that the the police chief wasn't really eager to to uh collaborate with others and get something done was this do you think did this all come to a head was this called or could be one of the reasons this act was called was in order to remove the police chief who didn't seem to be cooperating with everyone else that was trying to solve this problem yeah the whole thing is turning into quite an interesting soap opera for people interested in canadian politics politics as you sort of follow the twists and turns and, and the different testimony that everybody's giving. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is turning into something of a slow burn as we're beginning to mm. get the different perspectives that kind of come together that really don't often match up with with each other. We're starting to see some of these texts come out and, and some of the disagreements. Um, and we've still got a lot to go. So I think at this point, uh, I think generally the tenor of it has been people are waiting to get the full picture, which is slowly unfurling and will for the next couple of days. And I don't think anyone has necessarily wants to say that there's been a quite a knockout blow yet until they get really everybody's sort of take on this one. But it's certainly true that the Ottawa police have been taking a lot of heat in the media for some of the some of the ways that they organized it. There does seem to have been a lot of um uh, should we say disagreements amongst different police organizations about how to handle it? But I mean, it also reflects, you know, police services that were tr- were acting in real time and they were bringing in, you know, their own information and they were having discussions and a lot of the chaos that kind of reflects that. So, you know, at this point, I think everyone is just really paying very close attention to see what else comes out at this as more and more witnesses come forward. Uh, again, as you mentioned, it'll be interesting when he testifies, uh, police chief slowly, uh, talking, uh, it, it seemed that he, from what we're hearing, he wasn't receptive to the information or the help that was being offered to him at what point, And when we know that during the conversation with Justin Trudeau and the mayor of Ottawa, that they talked about, uh, the, the mayor talked about, uh, p- replacing him, but didn't want to, uh, obviously, uh, shake up things within the Hamilton or sorry, the Ottawa police service within uh, a protest that was going on but but who how would that happen i mean if all of a sudden the chief uh, something happens and it's not working and we need to make some quick changes whose responsibility is that is that the city that fires the chief or replaces him i'm not sure i don't know exactly how the uh, the auto 
Ottawa uh, mayor uh, and the police chief uh, sort of have accountability to each other. One thing that is clear from this, though, is that there were many different police organizations that were involved. I mean, you had the parliamentary precinct, you had the Ottawa police, you had the OPP. The RCMP was kind of involved in this sort of as well. And so I think part of the confusion about this was who was doing what and, uh, you know, the different information about how they were sharing with one another. But specifically on that HR, I'm not sure how, how they relate to one another. Are you surprised that there wasn't or there didn't appear to be a plan B? Because this seemed like um, the normal course of action wasn't working. And then, it, you know, people were looking to each other. Well, who, who's going to take charge here? Uh, I mean, from what the stuff that I've been reading, this is really my own personal take on this one. I mean, look, it does very much look like something that was happening again, you know, in real time. And you had, you know, professionals that were trying to understand what was going on. They were feeding different information. They were trying to cooperate with each other. But it does, you know, it was clearly becoming more and more chaotic, and it was going, and there was a lot of tension going on between different professionals as well. I mean, I have no background in policing, so I don't want to go back, go out and really second guess them too much, mm-hmm. uh, you know, here and, you know, sort of trust that these are professionals working very hard under very, very tough circumstances. But, you know, the reality was that, you know, it did ultimately end up in calling of the Emergencies Act. And I think, again, most Canadians just want to know what exactly happened there. What was what was the process that led to that? And was the calling of the Emergencies Act really necessary? And we've still got a lot of people that are coming to talk. So, you know, I, I think everyone's just waiting to get the full picture, which is the point of the inquiry before any final conclusions can be drawn. When do politicians get involved in policing? Yeah, I mean, as they will be no shortage of times that they've been reminding us, they're not responsible for it. It would be inappropriate for them to get involved in the actual operational details. I mean, they're not police officers themselves. That's what the organization does. So they have to sort of leave it uh, to them. And, and this is a point that they have been very uh, keen to drill home on the Canadian public, that they will not get involved in the actual uh, operations. And, you know, I don't think, you know, really they should. They're not they're not police professionals. They don't they don't know what's going on but you know they are the, the politicians that are ultimately uh, you know you that you, you have the accountability for how the government runs and so we and they're the ones that you know, at the federal level called the emergency act were the ones that were responsible for triggering it so we do want to get a sense of what they were thinking and what they were being told by police professionals about the powers that they had and whether or not they needed more powers and what they were going to do with those once they got it but that's not really going to become clear until we start hearing some of the uh, more of the people that were responsible for those decisions at this point we're still sort of looking at the operational side of things what do you hope we'll learn from this andrew uh, well, I mean, I think like everybody, you know, what we're all sort of looking for is a clearer picture, first of all, of the operations, uh, what exactly happened, just to, why did it seem to fall apart the way that it did. Uh, I think a lot of people want to know why, again, the Emergencies Act was called, what exactly was the reasoning behind that? What were the extra powers that uh, were were being brought out there that you know, police officers didn't have. And there, there's still, a, I think, a lack of clarity on exactly what those are. And we're still waiting to get a get a better picture of that. Uh, and what was the what was the information that the politicians had that made them feel that this was the right choice? And again, this is something that we're probably not going to get until some of those people come in and, and talk to the, the commission. Uh, so until until we hear from them, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor in Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto. Andrew, thank you for the time. Be well. No problem. Thanks very much. All right, let's bring in Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. He is with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, sir. How are you today, Scott? 
So far, so good. Uh, I want, I've been dying to ask you about this and, and what your thoughts are. I understand CSIS uh, will be represented, uh, although they are going to uh, testify in private for obvious reasons. First of all, your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, obviously CSIS, as Canada's National Security Intelligence Service, has a role to play in gathering information, assessing it for how true it is, and then providing government ministers, including the prime minister, with advice on issues that do relate to national security and public safety. So it seems to me uh, obvious. It also seems obvious to me, as you just stated, they'll be reporting in private because there are sensitive sources that will be discussed here. But the fact that CSIS would have been looking at the potential for violence with respect to the Freedom Convoy last January and February uh, is a no-brainer. They certainly looked at other threats like that when I worked at CSIS. So the fact that they've done that is should surprise nobody. And they are an important actor in Canada. Uh, your thoughts on what we've seen so far? I, I, I kind of have a theory. I want to hear what you think first <laughs> and then uh, your thoughts. Oh, okay. You make me go first. Are you? Okay. Um, it's been bizarre. well. That mean, that allows that allow, that that allows me to alter mine, Phil, and sound okay, less silly. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, it's been bizarre, Scott. We've had a real dog's breakfast of uh, complainants and plaintiffs, or whatever you want to call them, coming up with all kinds of ideas from people that thought that you know the freedom convoy was the end of civilization as we know it, in terms of the diesel fumes of the noise. And we've had competing claims by various law enforcement agencies on the nature of the intelligence and how serious the threat was. It's hard to say. What it does speak to, Scott, I think, is that when you're in a fluid situation, like what was happening earlier on this year in Ottawa, things change rapidly. And even intelligence services have to react rapidly to the information they're getting. They have to assess it. They have to try to figure out what it means, try to, you know, if, if you have questions, get your source to find out more information on things. It's never easy to do this on the go. It's very much a challenge. But this certainly has seen, I, I don't won't use the term soap opera, Scott, but it's been yeah. bizarre to say the least. <laughs> All right. So as we're watching this, it seems evident. And again, we're still early on, a couple of weeks in, there's still a few weeks left, uh, that the, uh, the there was a complete uh, breakdown and dysfunctionality within the senior levels of the Ottawa Police Service and their liaisons with uh, the Police Services Board and even the mayor's office uh, in saying that, you know, uh, we didn't really we're not really going to pay attention to the uh, to the intelligence. And, and we all think it's going to be out by the end of the weekend. Mm-hmm. So that's one issue kind of ignoring the the evidence then the second one was not having a plan b if they don't leave and to me that's what security is all about you don't call cops when things are going well it's when things go south uh and not having a plan b and then once all of this started arriving it's like he didn't want to play well in the sandbox with others so could it be the emergencies act was called because the chief needed to be removed and leadership put in place that eventually implemented the plan and got the streets cleared. He did resign the day after it was called. Wow. Um, interesting theory. I, I will state for the record, Scott, I'm not one to normally criticize law enforcement. I mean, I'm not ex-law enforcement myself, even though I did work for the OPP for a while when I retired from CSIS. I I, say, I think this was a moving target. Were things done wrong? They're always done wrong. I, I think what concerns me most is that when you talk about intelligence and law enforcement, there are a lot of players in the room. So we know here in Canada, we have federal, provincial, and municipal police force, as well as First Nations police. We have the RCMP, we have CSIS, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of bodies in the room. And this may be a great surprise to your listeners, Scott. There's a lot of egos in the room at the same time. And so what should work seamlessly in that agency A tells agency B something, and agency B says, thank you, we're going to use that. 
uh, doesn't always happen. It hasn't. It never has happened in history. So again, I don't want to be too critical of the agencies themselves, but it does speak to me that there could have been greater coordination. There could have been greater use of information provided by, by the various agencies. And yes, you should have multiple plans on the table from best to worst, hoping the worst not going to be used. But if it does come to that and one hopes it doesn't, at least you're giving it some thought. I think that's what really stands out to me is, um, you know, if, if you if you get it wrong, you get it wrong, but not to have your rear end covered, not to have a plan B or C. I think that's what's surprising a lot of people. And even as you said, you know, there's RCMP, there's OPP, there's Ottawa police all there, uh, even when it comes to that, uh, the, the uh, Ottawa precinct there and in and around the parliament buildings, it's, it appears like there's not a plan. Will one come out of this, do you think? Oh, wow. What, what, what a great question. Um, you know, I'll go back to what happened. You know, we, we just passed the eighth uh, anniversary of the death of Nathan Cirillo Scott on, on you know, yeah, on National yeah. Senate attack. And we know what happened once uh, Michael Zappi, both the ISIS wannabe, got back in his car, went to Parliament Hill. We have this jurisdictional problem and that Wellington Street is was the um, Ottawa police, the grounds of the Parliament or RCMP, the buildings themselves were Senate and, and Parliamentary police forces it just there's too many too many pigs at the trough i you know sorry for that as a t- terrible t- analogy to use but um there's too many actors at the table and, and i sincerely hope that what happens in the in the aftermath of this if anything comes out and, I, and i'm skeptical it's going to come out of the inquiry um for the record i do not support the trudeau government's use of the emergency i thought it was a vast overreaction i hope we get better at sharing information uh being a little more modest and a little less uh I don't know, egotistical in terms of our own agencies, those of us that work for them, and that we play better in the sandbox so that the next time this happens, yes, we do have a plan B, C, D, and E, and we can agree to share intelligence in a usable format so these things don't happen. Is it obvious now that, uh, again, like in a post-COVID world where you're talking about healthcare or whatever, is it obvious now that the norm can't can't continue here. We need a plan for this because if it's happened once, it could very easily happen again. We have to get everybody rowing in the same direction. I think any organization that deals with public safety, national security, or the public interest has to constantly reevaluate its its resources, reevaluate its mandate where it can, as well as the way it does its job. No organization says we've got it down pat. We don't have to make any changes ever again. You realize things change. Could it happen again? It can absolutely happen again. I, you know, I've been in this town for 40 years, Scott. I can't tell you how many demonstrations I've seen downtown, including demonstrations by terrorist groups like the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam that were allowed to demonstrate. So, yes, you're constantly learning. And uh, one hopes that the officials in charge have the, the, the modesty to recognize, yes, things didn't go well this time. Let's make it better next time. You know, and, and again, I, I keep, I don't want to keep harboring on the same issue, Phil, but as you just said, Ottawa gets this all the time. There's always, that's where people go to demonstrate. Again, that's what surprises me. There's no template for when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, it is a very good point. You know, we, we have that, that tension, Scott, between your, your democratic, your charter right to protest, no matter how, inane or unsupportable the cause is versus public safety and national security. And it's a very fine line that they're straddling here. You know, in fairness to them, if they crack down too early, they're accused of basically stifling the democratic yeah. process. If they crack down too late, they're accused of not cracking down early enough. So you kind of lose-lose no matter what happens. But yeah, I, I can imagine there are a lot of people a lot smarter than I am around the table saying, okay, this didn't go well. We recognize that. Rather than pointing fingers, let's figure out how to do it better next time. Did politicians get in the way of security? Oh, they always do. 
I, I hate to say <laughs> hate to say this, but they always do. And and this is but this is a serious point, Scott. When you work in security, intelligence, and law enforcement, yes, your clients are politicians. And when I worked at CSC, which is Signals Intelligence, I took my directions for what the clients wanted to see in terms of the intelligence, but they can't tell you how to do your job. And they can't direct you in that set. There has to be that independence for the simple reason, as you're well aware, in some cases, law enforcement intelligence are looking at the very people that are giving them instructions in case they're involved in illegal activities or working for a foreign government. So there has to be that 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 careful separation. When we have po- politicians, you know, putting their fingers in, in the intelligence and law enforcement pie, that's rarely a good result for anybody. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security uh, Program and former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. And coming up after the 6 o'clock news, he's here with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, the healthcare system and such, but there's a, a story out today about the amount of nurses and just healthcare workers in general, like doctors, I presume as well, uh, that are moving to the U.S. for a better life, a better situation, uh, a better working experience, a better system, and more money. And it, it's amazing to me we're still hearing commercials and protests about about, uh, you know, uh, we're going towards a private healthcare system. And we've had this discussion before. And, and honestly, it's not one or the other. It's not one extreme to the other. It's a bit of both in the middle. It doesn't mean we're going to the United States uh, system where, you know, you don't get in without a health card. It means the way uh, healthcare is delivered in, in, in a more efficient way there. Um, your thoughts on the fact that now nurses, it's measurable, uh, are moving there for a better situation than they are here. Uh, is it all about money or is it because the system's better there? Well, we would have to ask the nurses why they're going. Maybe they want to live in Arizona or Florida, which, you know, as we get closer to winter, I could understand that. We're, we're dealing with those that have had enough of the Canadian system. Uh, yes. And, and I, and you know, it is a really interesting question to ask and a really delicate one to ask because scott what is the one thing forever that when we talk to our american friends we brag about oh our healthcare yeah. system is so much better than your broken battered down healthcare system well then you know this this i'm not going to say this disproves that argument but i'm going to say that perhaps if we've got a bunch of people who are now saying i think i want to go the other side it at least raises some red flags about our system that we already know were there because we've had lots of questions about our system. And I think the biggest thing, perhaps, is not necessarily whose system is better or whose is less broken. Maybe some of them are thinking, whose is more likely to be fixed? Now, I don't know that there's an answer to that one. But if these are forward-thinking people who are saying, look, I can't see that it's going to get better here, but maybe I can see it's better there, I don't know. But it's, I think that if you're basing it on this and basing it on what we've seen over COVID, I think maybe we have to tamp down our boasting to our American friends just a little bit because I'm not you sure think? we can make that same boast the way we did. Uh, talking to uh, Hamilton, the chief of Hamilton Paramedic Services, uh, he basically said um, staffing issues, whatever, uh, what have you, the city's been doing a great job. They got a future plan in the works in order to manage growth. That's not the problem. He said the problem is the model's broken. Too many ambulances are getting stuck in hospitals. 
hospitals that can't offload patients uh, because of the system. The model is broken where they're dropping off patients and such. Why can't we focus on coming up with a new model as opposed to having an argument about the Canadian system versus the U.S. system, when in the end, the solution will be neither. It'll be a combination somewhere in the middle. So let me suggest an answer that, honestly, Scott, even as I give you this answer, I don't know if it's the right answer. All right. So I'm saying that up front. It's a it's a thought. Let's have the discussion about this one. And that primarily is for us to fix our system. We much of what we've done in the past that seems to fix our system has simply meant pour more money into the bucket. Yeah. More yeah. money will automatically fix things. It hasn't. So fixing our system might mean disassembling some of the things that those in the system hold very dearly to that we would have to tell them, no, that's not working. So we have to take that apart. And that may mean you're not in that same position or you don't oversee that same group at high salary. This this would require, I would think, and again, I'm throwing this out there, not as someone who works in the healthcare system. This is just from a 30,000 foot vantage point. Fixing sometimes means taking apart. And I'm guessing that a lot of people in the system, especially those who have worked in the system a long time and are used to that system, may not necessarily want that to be taken apart. It can always be fixed with just another few billion dollars thrown in on top, which hasn't worked, apparently. It's more convenient to point out the horror stories that we see and we hear. I mean, how many times do we need politicians saying to us, you know, this is happening and it shouldn't be. That's happening. Well, we all know that. And I've had people email me that and said they're tired of hearing politicians talk about the obvious. People are experiencing it. They're living it. They know what the situation is. What they need is some constructive uh, solutions. What they need is a new model. And instead, we we're still kind of throwing dirt at each other. Well, it, Scott, okay, so you have a leak in your basement. There, there's a couple ways that you can deal with this. You could try to simply attach more downspouts from your eaves trough and hope that water pours away. But if it's still leaking, maybe at some point you have to really do the drastic thing and dig up all around your house and reseal yeah. your basement. Nobody yeah. wants to do that. It's a giant pain in the butt and it's dis- it's uncomfortable and it's costly, but it's the right answer. I don't think too many people, and not just healthcare, in any line of work, want to take the position that we've got to do the foundation digging. I'd rather just run more water away and hope it works. That's why we're talking about dental care and daycare instead of actually fixing the healthcare system. Look, something shiny over here. All right, I'll let you go. Host of the Scott Radley Show, Scott Radley here. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. If you're looking for the scariest Halloween costume this year, just ask the Prime Minister. He has a long list of things he thinks you should be afraid of. 